Well, actually, to be honest with you, I was going to rehab to save my marriage. I called my wife and uh, I, I asked her, I said, um, you know, uh, do you guys miss me? Uh, you and the kids. Uh, and she said, actually, no, the house is much more pleasant than you got. Um, and uh, and um, I, uh, I hadn't really understood what was going to happen at that point. Even in the first three or four days of rehab, I was looking at these uh, other addicts who were crying and grown men weeping, and I'm like, yeah, that's not gonna be me, no. Uh, and then, you know, four days later, I am like on a ball in the floor weeping, you know what I mean? So, <laughs> I mean, I, I don't know what it, other people, what, what stage of rehab other people cry at. I cried on, on so I'll tell you what happened. That I'm actually looking for. But let me say intelligence, emotional intelligence, social intelligence, financial intelligence. So I believe it's important for each and every one of us to understand the rules that govern any arena of your life. You are listening to The Revenge of the Forsaken Gods, a podcast that explores the human experience and seeks to create a blueprint for living using books, stories, movies, and conversations. And here is your host, Andrew Balongo Opere. This podcast contains occasional strong language. Listener discretion is advised. Have you ever been taking substances like drugs, alcohol, being a workaholic over a long period of time and you feel that it's affecting how you do your work and your relationships? This must be very frustrating and For a lot of us, it must be difficult to know when is the right time to get help. My recent guest is going to help me have this conversation because apart from being a radio host for over 22 years, you can currently catch him on Capital FM in the morning with the magnificent co-host and an awesome show. And apart from that, he's a creative director director and co-founder of Nusu Nusu Productions. But what makes this interview special is because our guest has openly talked about his addiction journey. And I'd like to find out how did he get into addiction? How did he get the help that he needed? And how has he been able to beat addiction? So without further ado, Help me welcome this Gujarati-flavored, Persian-American-flavored, awesome Kenyan, Fareed Diamond Kimani! <laughs> That's quite an introduction, man. Thank you very much. <laughs> hey, you're the real deal. You're the real deal. And um, in fact, an interesting fact is when I was trying to call you just to have this conversation to find out the uh, how to have the conversation around this, you ditched me on that day. But you didn't ditch me in in a bad way. Would you mind just sharing what happened on that day? You said that you had a call uh, after work, and you had to go and help out someone. Ah, yeah, 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 yeah. So, yeah, and I remember. So, um, you know, I um, I've been fortunate enough in my recovery to. Uh, look, I've been fortunate enough to see both sides of addiction in my life, right? So I've seen the side where drugs and alcohol seem like the right answer. And I've seen the side where uh, the clarity of mind and the the honesty and the, the not having to hide and, um, and uh, you know, the ability to, to control uh, through sheer willpower. Um, I've seen that side as well. And I've, I've had a number of relapses along the way. I've never been shy about talking about them. My last relapse was just after my mum died, um, so I celebrated a year sober on March 20th this year. Uh, out of my five years in recovery, that was another year sober. Before that, I had relapsed on the 19th. Uh, my mum died on the 18th, 2022. Um, so I've been fortunate enough to see both sides of the coin, and uh, that has led me to want to be of service to the still-suffering addict. Uh, the person who is unable uh, and and because I am empathetic in the sense of I know what it's like to be unable uh, to 
control my alcohol and drug abuse. I know what it's like to be unable to tell the truth, uh, to ask for help. Um, so I ditched you because I was running around trying to help a young man uh, who's about 35 or 36 years old, uh, who's in, who is still in the throes of his addiction. Um, but I was, uh, I was uh, cool to do service and sit and talk to him and, and help him. And we did get him into uh, Chiroma Hospital and eventually off to rehab. The unfortunate side of, of that, that work I do, it's called 12th Step Work. The 12th Step of the Alcoholics Anonymous program says, you know, we carry the message forward. Um, the, the unfortunate side of that work is some people don't respond and you can't help everyone. Um, and that can be quite, quite disheartening and quite mind-numbing, you know, because you really want to be, you know, uh, able to, to get everyone on that path. Um, so I, 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 it, it, it really pains me when, when that work doesn't help that addict. Um, and unfortunately for this particular addict, um, he has fallen in back into his addiction. He left rehab on his own volition. And uh, at some point as a person doing service and helping, you also have to check out and move on uh, because some people are not ready. That's not to say he doesn't want to, he doesn't want help or doesn't want to be helped. He's just not ready uh, for the help. In fact, that's the reason why um, I wanted to talk to you today because uh, I'd like to cover three main topics. Your addiction journey and how you navigated through it. Um, also, that individual that is going through things and they don't know how to reach out for help and lastly your family friends your colleagues want to help out but they don't know how to interact with you so i guess let's start with your with your addiction journey uh when did you become aware that you were addicted to substances I would say towards the end of 2017, the beginning of 2018 is when I realized that no matter what I did, no matter how many times I woke up with a hangover or just feeling, you know, rough because of a heavy night of booze and drugs, um, I couldn't stop, you know, like I, I would say that's the last time, that's the last time, that's the last time, but it was never the last time. You, it was, <laughs> You know, if you are feeling really rough, uh, you might stop for a day, maybe two. Um, sometimes the alcohol helped the roughness to go away. You know, they, uh, it's an old saying in the film industry. I don't know if you remember. You might be too young. Uh, VHS cassettes. <laughs> yes, I remember. So there used to be one that used to clean the VHS. It was called a head cleaner. So we used to say, if you have a hangover, a beer is a head cleaner. Uh, you know, um, and uh, you know, in the industry I'm in, you know, it's not like, you know, everywhere you go, there's there's, there's booze and drugs, you know, um, uh, mostly booze, but you know, sometimes drugs as well. So I, I was going to a private addiction counselor here in Nairobi uh, without anyone knowing. My family didn't know. I was desperate to get clean, um, but I couldn't. You know, I would go, and then you know, two days later or a day later, I was using again. So. Um, you know, my uh, now ex-wife, who is still one of my closest people to me in the world and the mother of my two children, um, and I had a very long conversation. And I said, I need to get out of here and I need to get some help. And uh, we planned it with the rest of my family, uh, my aunt, uh, my mom, uh, my uncle, and my addiction counselor here in Nairobi by the name of Pat Manners, who is the most incredible woman in the world. Um, and I wanted to go to a rehab in Nairobi and she refused and said, no, no, no. if you go to a rehab in Nairobi, you'll find a way to escape. So they sent me to South Africa. Um, wow. Uh, but I was ready. I was ready. I was, you know, I'm 82 kilograms now. I was 70 kilograms when I left. Um, and I'm, not a, I'm not a big guy, you know, I'm quite lean. I can imagine me uh, 12 kilograms lighter. I probably, you know, look quite sick, you know. 
Uh, I thought I looked great. <laughs> I didn't. I think I have a picture on my fridge that is a constant reminder of that period of my life. Um, and uh, yeah, that was it. That was what I knew. So I'd like to just get some clarity. Paint for us a picture. You said um, you got your awareness in 2018. But where were you in your career? We're assuming probably what? Are you in radio? Are you reaching that level where you're successful? People know you. You're getting gigs left, right, and center. Just paint for us how your day was looking like and how... So so the, the, the dangerous thing about the kind of addict that I am is I'm an, an extremely functional addict, meaning that I could be drunk and stoned right now during this podcast and you wouldn't know. Well, I mean, I would think you wouldn't know. You probably would know. The audience might know as well. So <laughs> I think, but, but I, I could go to work. I could go to work. I could go to meetings. I could direct TV commercials. I could direct TV shows. I could do creative concepts for clients. I could, I mean, all of it was pretty half-assed to be honest. It wasn't like I was giving my optimum anything. Um, so, but I was functional. So I showed up, you know what I mean? Basically showed up. I was a body in a room, a body in a radio studio. I wasn't doing my best work at all. Um, but I was busy, you know, I had my radio job. My production house was doing okay. I mean, we, it was starting to do quite, quite poorly at that period. And I think my addiction probably had quite a bit to do with that. Um, I stopped being kind of accountable during that time, you know, 2016, 2017, 2018. I wasn't what it should have been. Um, what do you mean by that? You know, I wasn't, I wasn't putting in a lot of effort. You know, I was putting in enough effort to do the work that we had, but I wasn't, you know, sort of like out and selling and mingling with clients and networking. And, I, you know, I, I, I had a fear of, of that because, you know, every time I'd go out with a client or, you know, to a social function that had work uh, possibilities, you know, I would get there at seven by eight o'clock. I was, you know, shit faced. You know what I mean? Like I was drunk. You know what I mean? Um, and I couldn't control it, you know? So, so the best thing for me to do was, you know, and I would embarrass myself, you know, I would say things and I would be loud and obnoxious and, you know, and then one day, you know, a week later, why not? potential client never called me back you know what i mean it was it was becoming quite messy um so the easiest thing to do was to not go to those functions so i so as an addict i couldn't go to those functions and not drink so i would just not go to those functions and drink so i would you know drink at home and i think uh, you know when i kind of realized how can I swear on this podcast, by the way? Because I talk quite. Sure, often. you can. So when I realized how fucked I was, is when I was drinking alone more than I was drinking with anyone else. You see, a social drinker, someone who's not an addict, you know, we can go out today, you and I, to Kengele's in Lavington, have a beer, maybe a meal, maybe even after dinner or, or, or the meal, we could have a whiskey, and we could go our separate ways and. You know, you'd go home, I'd go home, and maybe next week we do it again. Uh, you know, and that's kind of our thing. That's a non-addict. That's non-addict behavior, you know. And then you might go three, four days in the week without even thinking about booze. And, you know, and then someone calls you on a Thursday and says, let's have a beer. And you're like, yeah, cool, let's have a beer. But that's fine. That's 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 a non-addict, right? Um, you and I now, if you, you want to know what I was like, we go to Kengele's, we have a beer, we have a meal. You say goodbye. I pretend to get in my fucking car. And then as soon as you pull out of the parking, I'm back in Kengele's and I'm drinking till 2 a.m. Um, <laughs> uh, so I'm an addict. You know what I mean? Like that's, you know, that's just how it is. You know, everyone always says, oh, but, you know, it'd be nice to get to a point where I can have a glass of wine and, you know, maybe a beer and, you know, just drink, you know, a couple of glasses with my friends. If you're an addict, that is never going to be a possibility. That is, you will never, ever, mark my fucking words, you will never get to that point if you're an addict. If you're a non-addict, yes, absolutely. You can have a weekend where you overdid it uh, and you feel a little bit rough on a Monday morning, but you are not addicted, so you know that next weekend you're not going to do that. Next weekend you're going to go for a walk in Karura on Saturday, 
On Saturday night, you're going to watch a movie with your girlfriend or your wife or your husband or whatever the case may be. Sunday, you're going to get up and go for a run because you don't want to feel like you did last weekend. And then in two, three weeks from then, you feel like get, letting off a bit of steam, you go and drink. And, and that's okay. That's a great, healthy relationship with drugs and alcohol. I, 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 would, I would die to have that relationship with drugs and alcohol. I really would. Um, but it's not a possibility for me. One whiskey. So there's a great saying in, in, in recovery, which is um, one is too many and a thousand is never enough. Uh, and that's who we are. Uh, one is always going to be too many for us because it will never end at one. And if we can, if we drink a thousand beers it's, or a thousand double whiskeys, it's never going to be enough. Um, so, you know, uh, we've gone off topic. So during that period of my, of my career, everything was, was good up until around 2016, 2017. And then things just started completely to fall apart. You know what I mean? Uh, my no, marriage no, was not a happy marriage. My, I, the only thing I will give myself credit for is even during that time, I was and still am a fantastic father. And that comes from not having a great father growing up and not wanting to, like no one should go through what I went through as a child. No, no young boy or girl should go through what I went through as a child. Would you mind just sharing uh, a little bit, if it's all right with you, what you went through as a child? Yeah, my father was an alcoholic. He was an absolute raging uh, alcoholic, you know, and I've, it's taken me 48 years, which is the age I am today, to forgive him. Um, uh, and that's only been in the last three, four weeks, you know, um, which is, wow. you know, I'll, I'll explain that a bit later on. And I mean, I used to, you know, I can vividly remember my mother being beaten up on, you know, on regular basis, um, you know, um, and we didn't know he was an alcoholic because you know that wasn't really a thing then you know what i mean what people weren't talking about i mean i always think if like my wife you know kind of encouraged me and convinced me to go to rehab like my mom could have never convinced or encouraged my dad to do the same thing you know what i mean um so i grew up with that um and and, and when i was in rehab funny enough you know most of the men in rehab in south africa were sons of alcoholics who also grew up in abusive homes. I mean, the abuse could have been towards the mum or the father towards the, the children. Um, so, so there is a, a quite a strong connection, I believe, and I'm not a clinical person, um, although that's going to change very soon. I'm going to tell you about that a bit later on in the podcast. Um, there's a strong connection between the relationship that, that men have with their fathers and addiction. Um, and most of these men came from the, they were children of alcoholic fathers and also witnessed some kind of abuse. So what do we do when we get older? We, we don't, I didn't know what I was covering up until I went to rehab. I had no idea. Like I went to rehab and they're the ones who told me you're drinking and drugging because the shit you saw as a child was too hard and you never want to think about it again. And I'm like, huh, actually you might be right. You might be right. That might be the reason why. Um, I, I drink so much and, and now you know when, when I sit with these emotions when I sit with the, the thought of or the thoughts of what I saw as a child and you know it, it's painful but I can't cover it up with booze and drugs because what am I what am I doing I'm, I'm repeating a pattern that <laughs> that my father was probably repeating as well you know from his father so you know um, we, 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 we can either continue or we have to you know break the cycle of addiction and and you know, I'm I'm, I'm hell bent and, and dedicated to 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 breaking it. And I want to thank you for sharing that because my purpose for having this conversation is not having it from a point of blame, but exploring what did you and what do children need? What kind of help do they need? Uh, what happens if they don't get that help that uh, as they develop as a child and, you know if you don't get that support then what are the coping behaviors we adopt and i think addiction is one of the ways of soothing that emotional distress or stress if i can say that so well yeah andrew it's the easiest because you know alcohol is not it's not uh, illegal it's not frowned upon then I think, you know, when you're, when you're 18 or in the U.S. 21 through college and maybe a couple of years afterwards, I don't think there's a problem with 
experimenting with, with drugs and alcohol. And, and, you know, it's a very controversial stand I have on it, but I, I have it and that's just how it is. Um, I don't think that there's a problem with experimenting. Um, what I think there's a problem with is when people stop experimenting, like your, your peers, um, and they start, you know, getting serious and drinking less. If you find that you're still at that same pace you were five, seven, three, ten years ago, you you need to take a very deep look at yourself, and uh, and then you know you might be an addict. So, um, but the coping mechanism, you know, look and look. Every family has its bullshit. You know what I mean? Like, I mean, I can't sit here and say I'm the only person in the world who saw my dad beat up my mom, or another person can say I'm the only person in the world who was a victim of some sort of you know physical abuse. I emotionally abused my my second wife. I, I did, uh, the mother of my children, for many years. Um, and to be honest with you, it's not that different to the physical abuse. You know, I, I, I wouldn't raise a hand to anyone uh, just simply because of what I saw as a child. Uh, but emotional abuse is pretty painful and and, and, and pretty damaging as well. Um, and, and how does emotional abuse look like? I mean, it's it's you say things because you know there's a pain element that that person will receive. You say things because you know that you can break that person down because you know their weakness. Um, and and I'm, 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 I'm guilty of that uh, and was guilty of that for a number of years. Um, you know, and that's all part of the recovery process, this whole thing about how do I, you know, I always say the easiest part of my recovery has been to not drink. The hardest part of my recovery has been to change my character defense. Um, and I still struggle with that. You know, I've just come out of a relationship very recently with, uh, with, a, with, a, with a lady, with a woman, uh, where a lot of my old behavior came out, which, which, you know, to be honest with you, when someone also knows your weaknesses and they know that you have the propensity because you've opened up to them about, you know, the things that you try and, and change and try and improve, uh, they can also turn a key to get you to do things that you know you can feel guilty about later. So I won't take all the blame for it, but I know that a lot of my character defects uh, did emerge uh, and have emerged in, in relationships afterwards. So I would say the character defect part is the hardest part to change. The sobriety part, it's you know, every time I've relapsed, I've had no problem getting sober again. Um, but sometimes I do find the bad thinking. Uh, the bad reaction to things, the way I treat people. Uh, and that's, you know, like the same drunk person, except I'm sober. I, mean, I always say, you know, it, it's called it's called uh, dry drunk syndrome. So where you don't drink, but you're kind of the same asshole you were when you were drinking, you know what I mean? So, um, and and I, I, I struggle with that, I do, I really do. Um, and I've had my, my, my battles with, but you know, one thing is now, I can, I can acknowledge it and kind of accept that it's happened and try and rectify it immediately. Whereas in my active addiction, I could be that guy for three weeks. You know what I mean? Um, and, but now I know as soon as it comes out of my mouth, I'm like, no, nope, that, that's not who I am. And you know, I but 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 I still I, I still have my moments where I where the relapse is more of an emotional relapse than than, than a substance relapse. And, and I'm glad you bring that up because like you said, um, while you're going through, you know, 2006, 2017, 2018, you're seeing that your relationship with your partner is not optimum. You're not giving your hundred percent at work. That may be the case with a lot of people. What helped you say, okay, fine. I need, I need, I need help. Because a lot of people just still continue that cycle until, God forbid, you know, they hurt someone or they commit suicide or, you know, something bad happens. Um, so if I'm getting you right, you're, you're, you're asking when someone realizes they need help? Yeah, when did you realize that, okay, fine, I will actually make the decision and the action? Well, actually, to be honest with you, I was going to rehab to save my marriage. Uh, even in the first three or four days of rehab, I was looking at these uh, other addicts who were crying and grown men weeping. And I'm like, yeah, 
that's not going to be me, no. Uh, and then, you know, four days later, I am like on a ball in the floor weeping, you know what I mean? So, <laughs> I mean, um, so even in rehab, I was like, I don't need this kind of help. I'm just here to tick a box for 35 or 28 days um, and go back home. And then everyone will say, you're great. You're a hero. You've done the hardest thing you'll ever do, blah, blah, blah. Um, uh, but I bought into the program in uh, at Bloomingdale Addiction Treatment Center, which I would recommend to anybody going for treatment. Uh, and we can talk about it maybe at the end. Well, since you brought it up, you know, we, we can talk about it. And, and, and what's so special about day four that people start crying? I don't know. It was I. I, I don't know what it, other people. What, what stage of rehab other people cry at? I cried on. Uh, so I'll tell you what happened. Um, this is a really interesting story. So, uh, and I recently. Oh, sorry. I was because I'm writing a book about my addiction, and I, I wrote about this just recently, and then I haven't written for like six weeks because it was so emotionally like taxing. Um, so I, you get one day a week to talk for 15 minutes to family uh, and my day was Wednesday um, and I forgot my mum's birthday was on Thursday uh, so I called my wife on Wednesday and I should have tried to call everyone on Thursday because they would all be together in Nairobi and I was in South Africa but anyway I didn't realize so I called my wife and uh, I, I asked her I said um, you know uh, do you guys miss me uh, you and the kids, uh, and she said, actually, no, the house is much more pleasant than you got. Um, and, uh, and, um, I, uh, <laughs> I went to bed that night and I, I, cr- I mean, it was a room with three guys. So there was like three of us in a room and I was crying quietly, you know, under my duvet, like really like, I don't want anyone to hear me not realizing that. I would be crying in a room full of men and women of like 35 men and women and counselors two days later because I hadn't really understood what was going to happen at that point in rehab. So I tried to keep it quiet because I didn't want anyone to think I was weak. Um, and then I, I think I became the biggest crier in the group at one point during rehab because I, it, it was, it was I, I, like I have, my father died in 2002, I didn't shed a tear. Um, I've had tragedy after tragedy and things I've seen as a child where I cried a lot as a child. When I got to a point of adulthood, I never, ever cried. You couldn't do anything to me that would make me cry. Um, uh, I cried, sorry, I did. I cried when my firstborn son was born. Um, but other than that, but that was like happy cry. You know, there wasn't like a sad cry. Um, and I didn't realize how important it was to cry. Like I had no idea when I went to rehab that at some point I'm gonna have to pull these walls down. Um, and they broke me, man. Like rehab broke me uh, in a good way, but they broke me. And it took them four or five days. They told me I was one of the toughest ones they've ever had. Um, Cause they would be like, you know, what's your story? And I'd be like, none of your fucking business. You know what I mean? I was this kind of guy, you know what I mean? And, um, so it, 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 they, they, but they broke me and when they broke me, when the floodgates opened, uh, they did not close for a good long while. Uh, and I, I was, you know, a weeping mess for the better part of 30 days. And why is it important to cry? Well, I think we hold on to a lot as men. Uh, I can only speak from the perspective of a man because I am one. So um, I think we, you know, I, I don't know how old you are, uh, Andrew, but I am... 49 in a few months so I'm you know pushing 50 now um, and uh, by the way I look 10 years younger than I did five years ago when I went to rehab as well so <laughs> which is obviously a direct result of, of the you know clean living but anyway um, but of that generation I don't think we were brought up as men where crying was going to be an okay thing I remember crying as a child and my father would say you're being a pufta you know, stop being queer, you know what I mean? So it was like, you know, what are you, a little girl? Um, you know, um, nowadays uh, we say, what's your mama? Yeah, 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 exactly. You know, you know, you need to be macho and strong, and, you know. Um, so I think we, we, we keep it kind of here, you know, in, in, the, in the where the anxiety sits, you know, just just below the sternum or just above the sternum of, of the chest. and. And that's when we, you know, if you'd rather react with anger than emotion, you'd rather react with 
with shouting than than soft crying and um, you know the release of all of that crying was was extremely cleansing uh, for someone who holds who was holding it a lot. The thing is now I cry quite a bit. <laughs> um, you know I could be watching a movie now uh, and it's like a the two lovers find themselves at the end, I get a little tear in my eye, you know, and I, I never knew what that was like, you know. Very guarded uh, growing up, uh, very angry, very, very bitter, uh, and, and always played the victim. Uh, because as addicts, we are genuinely always playing the victim. Um, and it's always somebody else's fault. And I drank and I, you know, I pissed in the fucking living room because it's somebody else's fault, or I, 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 I hit another car because it's somebody else's fault or I lost a friend because I was he lent me money and then I you know blew it on cocaine it's always somebody else's fault uh, and now I I know how to take blame um, it's hard sometimes uh, and sometimes you know to be honest with you I take blame just because I don't want to get into a confrontation with people um, and you know that's maybe not the best approach to to life, uh, but it's my approach. Um, and also, you never really know what anyone else is going through, right? You never really know someone else's struggle. And you know, someone may come at you with some shit uh, out of nowhere, and it happens all the time, right? Uh, whether it's at work or you know, with your friendships or whatever. And. Um, and I just, you know, I kind of, I kind of hang back these days, you know, and I let the kind of whole thing unfold, and maybe take a day or two away from it, and then I reapproach the situation uh, when cooler heads have prevailed. Having said that, I also have, as I said, um, lapses in my emotional sobriety, and I can oftentimes say shit that I shouldn't, and then immediately regret it. So, um, you know, it's it's a it's a, it's, a, it's a daily struggle. It's, it's a daily struggle. It's interesting you bring that word up, emotional sobriety. What is that? Well, emotional sobriety and the substance, uh, the sobriety from substances, are, uh, they have to, they have to, so they have to go hand in hand. And, you know, most addicts are conniving, self-serving, lying, cheating, manipulating um, people. I've stolen cocaine from people's homes because I didn't feel like calling my dealer and there was some shit sitting in the bathroom. I've, I've not paid bills, you know? I mean, I've, I mean I've, I've, I've done some pretty rotten shit in my day. Uh, I haven't murdered anyone or done anything on that level, but, but I mean, I've done some things that, that and, and, and to be honest with you, 99% of my friends have stood by me and you know, it's I get emotional when I think about that because I've done some things that maybe caused them not to. Um, uh, having said that, um, th there's a side to recovery that is uh, along the substance, uh, the abstinence of substances and, and alcohol and drugs, which is the emotional sobriety. So, you know, we, that's when we start to address and change the character defects. So, if you're a liar, how do you stop lying? If you're a manipulator, how do you stop manipulating? If you're one of the people that just, you know, flies off the handle at anything, how do you, you know, curtail that? Um, I often say that I know when my emotional sobriety is on track is when I can trust my gut. Because for 43 years, or 44 years, whenever I went to rehab, 43 years, I was completely unable to trust my gut. In fact, I would do exactly the opposite of what my gut was telling me to do. Um, the last five years in my recovery i've had more successes trusting my gut than failures um and then i go through periods where i can see my emotional sobriety is off and i'm like shit man my gut is and then i'll call a family member mostly my auntie uh auntie gina um and ask her her opinion on things um but when when i can fully trust my gut and you know what the best part is even when my gut is wrong i'm not angry that's when my emotional sobriety is great because your gut can't be right 100% of the time, right? You come across a situation, even in sobriety, and you'll say, okay, my gut's telling me to do this and not do that. You know what I mean? To take road A and not road B. And then you take road A and it's a complete fucking mistake. Even then, in my emotional sobriety, I'm like, it's fine. It's okay. I trust my gut. My gut brought me here. 
my tires blew out, I got carjacked along the way, someone stole my wallet, I lost my phone, you know, all this stuff has happened, but there's a reason that my gut told me to go down this road, no matter what the outcome was. That's when I know my emotional sobriety is, is you know, on that, on that, in that sweet spot. Do you remember a situation where like that happened, where you trusted your gut, it was wrong, and then your emotional sobriety kicked in? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I think my... So I've been in, in, in uh, three relatively long-term relationships since uh, my wife and I split up, um, which, which, you know, they, they say in rehab, take a year and don't, you know, don't get into a relationship. I didn't listen, so I got into three back-to-back, and the third one has literally just ended. Uh, but the, this, the first one um, was with an incredible woman, like absolute angel of a woman, um, who I fell head over heels with. Um, but... But we couldn't be together. Like I, I, I knew like there was a distance thing. She was also an, in 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 my opinion, but I could be wrong. But she was also an active addiction, but not not clearly um, addressing it, uh, which is very dangerous. Was very because I was you know kind of fresh out of rehab as well. Um, so I trusted my gut <clears throat> to to ensure the relationship was over. Um, and it was really painful because I really, really, and even now I, I really like genuinely as a person, I love this person and I think she's an incredible human being, smart, uh, funny, uh, you know, the wavelength was just like, you know, the heads could like read, you know what I mean? Um, but I had to trust my gut, which was like, this is going to end up badly for you as a recovering addict. Uh, and right now you need to focus on that. So I ended the relationship um, and it was painful very very painful um, but I knew it was the right thing to do because my gut was telling me to do it you know and and in that period of, of you know trusting my gut I've had moments of like shit should I have done that like I really wish I thought that through a bit better because she was an amazing woman but I'm like doesn't matter that's what my gut told me to do so that's what I've done um, so that's a, a huge instance you know of, of, of trusting my gut and my gut telling me that's the right thing to do looking back now do you see that was the right choice or it wasn't the right choice no no i, I look I, I i firmly believe that if if people are meant to be together they'll be together um and if they're not they won't so i mean only time will tell if that was the right choice or the wrong choice you know um if it was the right choice then we will not be together and if it was the wrong choice then we'll be together um you know i, I also I'm, I'm in a period right now where spending a bit of time alone is is paramount to my recovery as well. Um, I have dated three women since, as I said, since rehab, and all three are in active addiction. Um, and that is a very unsafe space for me. A very, very, very unsafe space for me because, you know, when they say you're one drink away from destroying your life, that's every addict's creed, right? So, um, yeah, so I'm, I'm, I'm in a, a space right now where it's where I just want to focus a little bit more on, on my emotional sobriety um, and helping and being of service to other still suffering addicts. You've brought out something very important. Uh, how do you relate with someone who is an addict? Because from what you've shared, antigen has helped you out. Um, uh, also the... Um, person that recommended you to the South African uh, rehab and even the people in the rehab you've mentioned how they've supported you how do you support someone that's going through the addiction maybe they don't realize that they're addicted from your experience what have you seen yeah I, I think it's it's vitally important um, to understand that it's not a one-size-fits-all glove, you know, son's an addict, Farid Kimani, what did you do? Cool, we're going to do the same thing. Now, I've dealt with a number of addicts since my recovery, uh, and again, I have to stress that it's from a non-clinical perspective because I'm not licensed or trained to give people, you know, you need to take six milligrams of Valium and then blah, you know, I can't do that, right? Um, so there's no real one piece of advice. What I would say kind of cuts across is empathy 
and understanding and believing that this person has a disease that they have no control over. Uh, because we tend to say, oh, come on, it's fucking drugs and booze. Just stop doing them, right? I mean, you know, and I, I can tell you right now, if that was the answer, we would be, I wouldn't be, I, <laughs> right? But I mean, if, if that was the answer to the problem, you and I, you would have never called me for a conversation because, I mean, it would be very simple to say, you know, it would be a two-minute podcast. How did you stop? I just, someone told me to stop doing it, so I stopped doing it. No, right? So that's not the answer. Um, so I think that empathy and, and really, you know, please understand as a family member or friend or colleague of, a, of an addict and an active addiction, you know, we don't have control over our addiction. And the worst part is our addiction has control over us. Uh, and we will lie, steal, cheat, maim, rape, murder, whatever it is, for our addiction. And that is a frightening, frightening prospect. You know what I mean? It is a frightening, frightening thing to think that there is nothing we won't do to pacify that addiction. Um, and you hear it all the time, right? I mean, mine is pretty mild. Um, you know, I was emotionally abusive to my wife and I told a bunch of lies and I cheated uh, on, in most relationships that I've been in. Um, you know, I mean, it's okay, it's not mild. I mean, it's it's devastating to the person that it's happening to, uh, the other person. Um, but I mean, you know, there are addicts that will murder, that will steal, that will rape, that will, you know, whatever. Um, and and so, so clearly there's no control, right? We don't have the element of control because the only thing that matters to us is the next fix, you know, whether it's booze or drugs. So please understand that it's a disease that we don't have control over because a lot of times you get families saying, I can't deal with this person, why can't they just stop doing it? You know, it's, it, it doesn't work like that, you know, for us, it doesn't work like that. So someone is truly addicted, we, we are suffering from a disease like any disease, you know, and it's not of our doing. Uh, we were, we picked up the first drink and we picked up the first joint and we, you know, racked up the first line of cocaine because we were trying to cover something up that, that is, that is a deep, you know, you know, alcohol and drug abuse is only a symptom of a bigger problem. So I would say that's one piece of advice. Second piece of advice I would give is let's normalize conversations about addiction and mental health at the dinner table. Let's make sure that families, when they're sitting down to have a meal, are having these discussions. Um, and, and not not in a condescending, like, you're an addict and you need to stop, in a way that, you know, that person who's sitting, because we are always on the fringes of society, right? Always the, the addict, you know, the drug addict or the alcoholic or the guy who's, you know, useless and doesn't do his work and it's a terrible son or a terrible husband. So we're on the fringe of society. Include them in the conversation. You'll find out things that will blow your mind. Uh, you know, we are some of the coolest people. Like, I sit in rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous and I'm like, these are the coolest motherfuckers that I've ever met. And here we are, sitting around a room, politely waiting for someone to finish speaking before we raise our hand to speak. If we'd all met at Kengele's in a group in our active addiction, it would be absolute anarchy and chaos. You know what I mean? Like, it's we are the coolest people in the world. Like, we are... Like, I, I look around, I'm like, man, I wish I could get into everyone's brain and just and understand what their party life and their active addiction life was like because we all ended up in this place together because we all had enough. What were some of the eye-opening insights that you experienced while you were in a rehab? Like, you know, whether it was from a session, someone shared that one thing, they were like, oh my God, yeah, that's cool, you know? Something that just opened your eyes and changed your life. I think one of the one of the really beautiful things that I I got in rehab was that I was I was worth it as an individual. That I was I was a good person. That was underneath layers of drugs and alcohol and deceit and all the other stuff. Um, that I could change. That all of us could change. You know. Um, I still struggle with that now, you know, like I, um, when I meet someone who knew me in my active addiction, who I had some sort of situation with, whether it was, you know, an ex-girlfriend or a friend or someone that I fell out with, you know, there's still the propensity of this person to think that I'm the same person. 
um, I think that, that that the fact that you know you can change, I think, is is huge. It's really big, you know. Um, and and I never had empathy before. Like I didn't give a shit what people were going through. You know, I, I just didn't care. Like I only cared about drugs and alcohol. You know, and and women and and all the other addictions that you know across the board. Um, and, and that were part of my very crazy 25 years, you know. Um, empathy is such a beautiful thing, you know. Like it's it's such a lovely feeling to be empathetic from a really pure and, and, and natural place of empathy, and not not I'm empathetic because I want people to hear that I'm empathetic, but you know, genuinely feeling something in your heart for somebody or some you know someone or something that you can't really control the emotion you know like i never had that before like it's like it's a you know it's being reborn almost you know all of a sudden you're a you're a, a person that has you know or, or another thing that, that that came out of my addiction you know I, i was never really happy for people that were succeeding um i was always sort of jealous and envious sort of like why not me you know to have a genuine joy for someone's success is something I started feeling only at the age of 42 wow yeah and that is you know <laughs> spoken like a true addict you know what I mean like that is crazy and now when someone tells me they got a job or they're doing this work or they you know, landed a gig you know that I genuinely just I'm like that is you know like, I, I just feel I feel so happy for them, you know, and I never had that before. I never knew what that was like, you know. It was always mixed with should have been me, should have been me, should have been me, you know. Um, that's a really amazing feeling, you know. And then the other thing I would say that I got out of rehab is when you're going to help other addicts, you know, you. I'm one of those people that you know used to want to stand there like a superhero, you know. I've done this and I've saved this person's life, you know what I mean? Um, and it's not about that anymore. It's not even close. It's, it's about the other person. It's got nothing to do with me. I'm just a vessel to get a message across. Um, but the ultimate goal is to make sure that this person is is going to survive. Um, and and you, I, I walk into these 12-step calls. I'm not Fareed, you know, the the guy, you know, with the cape, you know, having uh, to save the day. I'm I'm just a a guy who's gone through exactly what this person is going through and my my mission and my my purpose in life is to make sure that I, I help them is the way that I was helped you know but perhaps that is a definition of a superhero someone mm -hmm. yeah, who yeah, can yeah 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 totally help. but but without the ego you know without without it being like hey well done Fareed you saved that person's life it's, it's, it's got nothing to do with me you know what I mean it's, everything is about that person um So I think those are some really big learnings um, for me. Um, but again, I do fall back into my character defects, and then that's you know the the key is to click and and realize it. I sometimes do get envious and jealous of people that are doing better than me. Um, I sometimes do walk into a 12-step call because you know I feel like you know it's Fareed and everyone knows me and now he's here saving the day so I have to really you know constantly check myself and I think that's just human nature the key is that you realize it so you you mitigate immediately you know what I mean so what are some tips that you could share from the 12-step program to help you continue walking the path of beating addiction because you've mentioned that you can relapse So once you relapse, what can you and what do you do to continue walking the path? So look, I I'm, I'm a bit of a I go as always. I I'm I'm always going against the grain of doctrine, uh, whether it's how I do radio, religion, um, and the twelfth step clearly says you know like you got to try never to drink again, which is perfectly fine because we all try, right? But what they fail to mention is that it's not as easy as it is written down in a book uh, and I have the book somewhere here it's called the big book 
Uh, so step one is to admit that you're powerless over alcohol and that your life has become unmanageable. Step two is that a higher power can relieve you of, of the addiction. So I always go against the grain. Um, so I won't say the tips and tricks of the 12-step program, but what I will give you is my piece of advice to every addict, which is you will probably relapse. You will probably drink again. It is never the end of the world. It's a chance to start over. And it relieves a lot of pressure from these young guys trying to get sober. Like, yeah, I'm going to do two years. I'm like, you're probably not going to do two years. <laughs> you know what I mean? You're probably going to have a drink in those two years. And that's okay. There's a beautiful saying in AA in one of the early, in the readings that start the meetings, which is the meetings are for anyone with a desire to stop drinking. Right? So that means that you could have drunk last night and you woke up today and you have a desire to stop drinking, then you're welcome in this meeting. And I love that. I love that because, you know, the, the other thing I will always say, which is vitally important in recovery is this just for today, um, one day at a time, uh, which is, you know, as most people know, is a huge part of the AA mantra. And when I came back from rehab, I think I'd done six months sober and I was hearing this one day at a time in AA and I was like, and so six months. Uh, when I relapsed the first time after a year, I realized how important it was to be sober one day at a time. Because um, I'm sober today, but I have no idea about tomorrow. I don't know. I mean, I might wake up in the morning and go to the kiosk down the road and get a bottle of whiskey. I have no idea. You know what I mean? I, I just don't know. Um, so that one day at a time is, you know, so, you know, for most addicts, it's very hard to say, I want to be sober for six months. So you just be sober today and tomorrow morning, get up and do it all over again. And then the next day, get up and do it all over again. And the next day, get up, and do it all over again and so on and so on and so on. And you'll hit those six months before you can blink an eye, you know? but it has to be one day at a time. And I was not a believer in that, but I am a 100% believer in that. Wow. Wow. And I love the, the insights you've shared. Just you're still a good person despite what you've done and you have the capacity for change. I think that's the biggest takeaway for me from this because I can see that being in the family environment, when someone does these behaviors of you know, lying, cheating, what have you, I can see how difficult it is for the family or your work colleagues to continue to accept that behavior and try to help you. They're like, hey, go for uh, go for rehab. No, I don't. I'm fine. You know, and what have you. And from what I've heard is a safe space is needed for transformation. But also to some extent, a heavy hand is needed, you know. I think... I think understanding is the key and I know we're running out of time and I really want to share one thing with you that I have, you know, I, I have a, a friend who is a, a very psychic person. I won't name her name here, but she's a very good friend. Uh, and I saw her uh, yesterday, uh, actually, uh, which is, you know, quite good that we had the call today because I have been thinking about something that I want to do to leave a legacy and it's not going to be radio, even though I will leave my own legacy there. It's not going to be TV. It's not going to be the other business. But for the last few months, something has been weighing heavily on my mind. Um, and when I sat down with her yesterday, she said to me, you're at a fork in the road um, as an individual. And you want to leave a legacy. And my last few months has been, and I've met couple of people who are in the space over the course of the last week uh, or two. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm going to get my certification to become an addiction counselor. Um, Congratulations. Yeah. Well, I, I haven't started yet, so <laughs> maybe in six months. You know, right, we right. Can, yeah. Um, but, but the decision has been made. Um, and that's going to be my legacy. My legacy is going to be to write books on addiction and to help young addicts recover. Um, oh, but not young addicts, addicts in general, uh, to recover. Um, and that is the most 
certain I've been about a career in my entire career. So out of this whole experience, you being addicted, uh, going to rehab, coming out of rehab, the people you've met, you having to deal with your emotions, you walking the path of emotional sobriety each day. What have you learned? What are three major things you've learned about yourself in the process? Well, I think, you know, one which we've discussed is that people can change. Two is that you can forgive yourself. It may not, may not be quick and it may not be easy, but you can't forgive yourself. And the third thing is that I was put on this earth for a purpose. Uh, and that purpose is to help addicts recover. What are you most grateful for today? My children. And my ex-wife was an incredible mother. What is it about them that makes you grateful? I don't think you can find a pure love, you know. Um, I didn't have it growing up um, with my father. And I, you know, see the way my two boys look at me even with the distance, you know, even when we're on video call or, you know, whenever I'm there in Switzerland visiting. Um, I don't think you'll ever find a, a, a greater love or a purer love than that. I'm so blessed to have it, you know, it could have gone completely the wrong way. My ex-wife could have shut me out of their life. I mean, it was very possible that could have happened. So yeah, I think that's what it is. And uh, I'm grateful to her because as a single mom, really, um, I mean, she's not a single mom, but as a mom who has custody of the children, she works hard and she, she, she's just an incredible mother. She's raising them so well. You know? And that may change the next five years. I may get a job for three, five years in Europe. We can be closer together and I, we can share the responsibility. Who knows, you know? Um, yeah, but she's an incredible human being. If you had a chance to go back in time and have a conversation with your father, mana, mana, I think I would have told him, if you hit my mom again, I'm going to stab you. <laughs> um, uh, but apart from that, since, since you're a man right now, I think I would have told him that, time, that the impact it is going to have on myself and my sister is going to be absolutely unimaginable. Um, and that he shouldn't just think about my mom in this equation, but also think about what he's done to the, what he's doing to the children. Um, but I would also put my arm around him and say, what the fuck did you go through, man? Like to be this person, like you must have gone through some shit. You know what I mean? Like, um, you know, instead of all the anger and the hate, um, I think I would have tried to be a little bit more empathetic uh, towards him. Wow. Wow. As we come to the close, I'd like to end it with three books, three movies, three songs. What are you, what are, what helped you? during your times of addiction anything come to mind yeah so there's a russell brand's book called recovery uh he's just celebrated 20 years clean um there's a book i'm reading right now which is gabor mate who also if you're aware of who he is he talks quite a very inspirational uh on addiction instead of the addiction why the pain yeah, but the book I'm reading now, I just downloaded it today, actually, and I started listening to it on Audible. It's called In the Realm of Hungry Ghosts. I remember that one. And another one, uh, which is incredible, is uh, You Are Not What You Think, uh, which is another great book, which I finished a few months ago. Uh, I don't do reading anymore. I do Audible. So I listen to books in the car, and it's amazing. Um, three movies. Um, I would say Scarface. Um, the book about uh, the movie about the founder of AA, starring Winona Ryder and Barry Pepper. It's a fantastic film. It's called Sometimes Love Is Not Enough. It's a beautiful movie. I always cry when I watch it. Um, and I would say the other movie that I could watch a million times is Anchorman, <laughs> just because I'm a huge Will Ferrell fan. Three three songs. Um, one is about addiction. It's stained. It's been a while. Uh, it's about uh, Aaron Rodgers' struggle with addiction. Um, brilliant. Um, REM's Everybody Hurts is a great one. And I would say the third song would be another REM song, which is um, At My Most Beautiful. 
And uh, for the books that you've mentioned, what are your main takeaways from each of the books you've mentioned so far? I know you're not finishing The Realm of Hungry Ghosts, but the other two, I know you've finished. You are not what you think is because your mind is constantly telling you you're this person that you are not. That you are an animal when you're actually not. And your mind tricks you into thinking. And it's not just about your, you know, uh, I'm not going to succeed, I'm a fail, all these things. So you are not what you think. You know, our minds play a lot of tricks on us, right? So that's a great book. And I would suggest it for anyone who is struggling with a place in the world, whether it's career-wise or family-wise. It's a, it's a super read. Um, Recovery, Russell Brand, is just another guy who speaks a lot like me talking about addiction. Um, and it's really important to break addiction down into normal language because most addicts cannot deal with the clinical side of addiction. We just need to know. So I'll give you an example. Step one in AA is uh, you admitted that you were powerless over drugs and alcohol and your life had become unmanageable. Russell Brand's step one, which is, he takes that step and he puts it in his own language. And his step one is, how fucked are you? No. So, so it, it's, it's an incredible read. Um, and he's a cool guy, right? He's a comedian, he's an actor, he was married to Katy Perry. He's just a cool guy. So it's a really cool guy talking to you about addiction. And he, he, if you look at him, you're like, surely he's using something, you know what I mean? But he's not, he's completely clean. Um, so yeah, and his, his work with addicts is amazing too. If you get a chance to just Google some of the work he does with, with addicts, you know, he's a real role model in this area. All right. Before we, 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 we roll out, um, yeah, because you started bringing up the issue or not the issue or rather the topic of superheroes, what would be your superhero name? Captain Diamond? Uh, <laughs> Super, super sober. Super sober. Wow. <laughs> All right, Captain Super Sober. If if let's say this Earth life was to finish today, this Earth experiment, God says, okay, we're gonna finish this experiment. It's going to finish today, but I'm gonna give you an opportunity to say what you've always wanted to say. your mom who's passed on you get that opportunity and your wisdom will guide people in what you want to say your ex-wives and your kids what do you say to each one of them so let's start with your mom uh, to my mom i just say you know i'm you know thank you for doing the best you could with me you know uh, i know i wasn't an easy kid and i definitely was a difficult adult yeah, I mean, just thank you for being just an incredible mother, you know, and putting up with a lot of shit just to make sure your kids were raised. Um, that's definitely what I say to my mom. Uh, to my ex-wife, I think I said it, you know, just, you've just done such a wonderful job uh, with the boys. And, um, you know, I, I have just immense respect uh, and, and love. And, uh, and adoration for you. My sons, I would say that, you know, I was uh, very sick and I am still very sick. Um, but you're the main reason that I want to fight this disease. All right, Captain Super Sober, before we fly off, what advice would you give to those struggling in addiction? your final words to them, words of wisdom, words of guidance, regardless where they're in their journey, whether they're still running away from their responsibilities, they can't face what it is they're trying to run away from. What would you say to them? That there is another life that is so beautiful, that where everyone smiles at you because you, you're a beautiful person, and uh, I've seen people that just can't come back from there. And I would say, you know, while you still can, just try and find that life. Um, I'd also tell them it's, it's going to be one very difficult journey. 
Um, and uh, but the rewards are so much greater than the, the suffering. Wow, wow. Thank you for that. And I guess what I've gotten from all that you've shared is take advantage of the support. You need support to get to where you need to go in life. So even when you fall down, it is support that will help you get back on your feet. Um, this conversation was inspired by a friend whose sibling is going through a similar challenge. So I felt I needed to have this conversation because I didn't know what to do. So you have helped me bring a little bit of clarity and I'll also attempt to reach some mental health professionals to get some professional insight that I can use and anyone who's going also through this can use. And I really appreciate you, uh, Farid, for your time. And if you have found this conversation helpful in any sort of way, please, I'd love if you could share your insights in the comments below. Uh, Farid, if someone wants to reach out to you, uh, maybe for uh, questions, they feel maybe you're the best person they can talk to, can they reach you on your social handles or email? Is that okay? Not, my Instagram is not private, so just follow me and send me a DM. And what's your Instagram? Uh, Farid Kimani. Farid Diamond Kimani, sorry. Yeah. All right. Thank you, Farid Diamond Kimani, Cap aka Captain Super Sober, the Gujarati Persian American flavored awesome Kenyan who's beating addiction Thank you one so day much. at a time. Thank you. Thank you very much. And you have been listening to The Revenge of the Forsaken Gods, uh, where I seek to uncover information that will help you get to the next level.